Amen. Thank you, Hunter. Take your Bibles, church, and open it, if you would, to Revelation chapter 10. Today we are getting close to the halfway mark in our study of this glorious book. And I have a question for you as we think about that sort of halfway mark. And the question is, how has your perspective on the book of Revelation changed since we started our journey? How has your perspective on this book called Revelation changed? I want you to think back with me of maybe some of the emotions that you felt when you learned we were going to jump into this series or maybe when someone maybe told you about it. I've heard of people who have come just because we're studying Revelation and we're glad that you're here. I've heard of Christians that are interested. I've heard of non-Christians that are here listening because you want to know what the book of Revelation is about. And I want you to know what the book is about. Maybe you felt things like curiosity. You never studied Revelation before and you wondered about its content. Maybe you felt apprehension. You kind of a little worried about the study of Revelation and how I would navigate it, knowing that there's so many different perspectives. I, I felt that emotion for sure. Uh, maybe fear. You're, maybe you approach the book with a bit of nervousness that the tone of our study could take a bit of a dark and maybe foreboding turn. Or maybe you felt a sense of anticipation, like I'm excited to dive into this book and learn about its timely message. I'm sure there's a lot of other emotions that we could talk about, but as we've made our way through this book, one that I've never preached before, there's been one emotion that keeps surfacing for me that I find to be a bit surprising. I find myself studying the book of Revelation feeling conflicted. I feel conflicted. What do I mean by that? Well, to be conflicted mean there's, means there's an internal struggle between things that seem to be incompatible or in opposition to one another. Things that we know are true and real, but we don't quite know what to do with. You ever have something where you're anticipating something that's coming up and you, you know you should do it? Maybe you think of like an elective surgery, like a knee repair and you're like, I know I should do it, but I feel a little conflicted about it. Or, I mean, everyone's talking about snow today, so let's go there. So you woke up at, a couple days ago and you're like, it's November and it's snowing and great. I mean, you feel a little conflicted. I said Merry Christmas to some of you walking in the door today and you didn't laugh. <laughs> not funny, Mark, not funny. Confliction is when something becomes real and clear but not maybe in the way that we had thought. Take last week, for example. We covered two chapters that highlighted overwhelming judgment. Last week was heavy. Remember, the earth, the sea, the sky are radically affected and all kinds of people, according to the text, are killed. This is the stuff of nightmares. And yet at the same time, this is what it means for Jesus to come back. So Christians read Revelation and we're like, come Lord Jesus. And then we hear last week's sermon and we're like, come. Come Jesus. 
We feel conflicted. We, we rejoice and we also tremble. Revelation shows us the confliction that exists between the beauty of God's glory on the one hand and the devastating reality of being on the wrong side of that glory. Remember the censer? It's a, it's a worship instrument that then becomes a missile of judgment. That's, that's conflicting. And we should feel that emotion. And we need that as we go into Revelation 10. Revelation 10 is another interlude chapter. It's though the book is set up to have really monumental moments of really fearful judgment, and then there's an interlude explaining, now, how should God's people think about this? So there's this judgment and then an interlude in the same way that we saw previously, in the same way that John recounted previous judgments, and then explains the sealing of God's people. So here today, we receive a rather personal account of what John hears, what John sees, and even, did you hear it when Hunter recited what he eats? This chapter speaks to what is happening to John, what's happening in John. And it addresses what should be happening in us as we read this book. And here's what I want to suggest this book does for you coming right off of a theme of judgment, if you're a Christian, it calls us, it invites us to live with hopeful confliction. To live in the world with hopeful confliction. Today I wanna to unpack this, we're gonna look at three key words or concepts coming out of this text, the idea of deliverance, not a new idea, Hope, not a new idea, but confliction. Third, that may be new for some of us, and I hope to help you understand why that emotion is so important. So we're gonna live with hopeful confliction in light of Revelation 10. So first, notice deliverance in verses one through three. Yet again, here we see this theme of deliverance that emerges in the book of Revelation. This theme is woven throughout the book and it emerges again in the context of judgment. I wanna remind you that one of the major themes in the Bible and in Revelation is that God delivers his people through judgment or he rescues his people from sin, death, and the devil by defeating sin, death, and the devil. It's not just that he wins, it's that he defeats them in totality. The suffering believers in chapter eight were asking, how long, O Lord? And now we see the enacting of divine judgment as a direct answer to their plea. In chapter 10, we see another mighty angel in verse one coming down from heaven. Here we see this angel. There was a previous angel in chapter seven. Remember, he rose from the east this was the other interlude with the seal of God by which he then protected God's people. Remember the 144,000? So chapter seven was an interlude. Chapter 10 was, is an interlude. We both, in both contexts, see angels emerging with a particular message connected to them. 
This, this angel comes down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. The image here is designed to connect this moment to both divine power and historical deliverance. Now first, who's the angel? Some commentators think this is the, a manifestation of Jesus. Sometimes he's referred this way. Others think it simply is a powerful angelic messenger that's in view here. Regardless, it's important to note that this angel is coming from heaven. Previous visions were John being brought into the throne room or into heaven, but now this angel messenger, or angelic messenger rather, is coming down to heaven, down from heaven rather, to earth, and he's encircled with all kinds of symbolism. The angel has a rainbow over his head, we saw that in chapter four with the throne, with a rainbow that was surrounding it. His face was like the sun. Remember Revelation chapter one, the picture of Jesus in verse 16 of chapter one, his face shone like the sun. Well, the point is, is that this angelic messenger has otherworldly glory. And then there are two historically significant symbols here. The angel is wrapped in a cloud and his legs are like pillars of fire. Now, if you know your Old Testament, think with me, where do we find God represented with clouds or a cloud and fire? Where do we find cloud and fire? Exodus, we keep coming back to this over and over. Exodus, 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 because the Exodus is the main historical redemptive event in the Old Testament and everything flows from that moment. It's the signature moment that describes the way in which God redeems his people and redeems them through judgment. Exodus 13 puts it this way, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So clouds and fire are loaded with meaning and comfort. They symbolize both the personal presence and the protection of God over his people symbolizes God's ability to deliver his people. Commentator Greg Beale says this, the point of the reference to God's presence with Israel in the wilderness is that the same divine presence is to protect and guide the faithful witness of the new Israel in the wilderness of the world as the following chapters reveal. In other words, the same God that was with Israel is the same God who's going to be with his people as they walk through trials, tribulations, and difficulties. Look at verse two. It tells us something new, something important. The angel had a little scroll in his hand and it's open. This has to be the same scroll that we saw before, the scroll that the lamb took and opened. That was chapter five. It's probably described as little here because the angel is so large. So there's a comparison that's going on. Now remember, remember the scroll? The scroll contained the plan of God for the world. Its seals were the judgments by which God would bring about the completion of his plan. And it was the lamb who took the scroll and opened the seals. Don't take this for granted. Part of what creates the confliction is the linkage between 
divine deliverance and divine judgment. They're linked together. That's the confliction. And yet this divine messenger has authority. He plants his feet on the sea, plants his feet on the land. It connects him to the power and the rule of God. He has both realms of the earthly created order under his feet. John here is recording what he sees. Now he turns to what he hears. He hears the sound of a roaring lion. Verse three, he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring, and when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. So this, imagine this lion roars, and suddenly there are seven peals of thunder. Boom, 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 boom. Why the roar of a lion? Joel 3, 16 says this, the Lord roars from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem, the heavens and the earth quake. Amos 1, verse two, the Lord roars from Zion and he utters his voice from Jerusalem. So this roaring lion metaphor is indicating that judgment is coming. It's similar to the trumpets that we saw last week. It's a powerful metaphor for the judgment that Christ will bring. And again, this judgment is announced with a terrifying sound. It's the roar of a lion. Following that roar, these seven thunders sound. These are seven spoken responses to the lion's roar and they sound like thunder. It's very interesting. Nearly the exact sort of thing in terms of Thunder and a messenger happens in John chapter 12. Listen to this moment in the Gospel of John. John records these words that Jesus said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Listen to the confliction in this text. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Listen. Now is my soul troubled. What can I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. And Father, glorify your name. Then, John says in chapter 12, a voice came from heaven. So a voice came from heaven that said this, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd stood there and heard it and they said, it thundered. Others said, no, an angel spoke to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So again, this deliverance that we see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that we see in Revelation, that we see in the gospel, the deliverance, the nature of what it means for the gospel to be the gospel is this conflicted reality. Jesus is gonna be lifted up. He's gonna die in order to redeem people. He says whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life will keep it. 
And these, this, this bold proclamation coming from heaven sounds like thunder. Take note how connected these themes of deliverance and judgment and divine pronouncement are. God has delivered his people in ways that don't make sense, are mysterious, and quite frankly, are often conflicting. Secondly, this text speaks of hope. What follows in verses four to seven is a hopeful statement, but it's not without mystery. Look at it. When the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. So now we know that these thunders weren't like literal peals of thunder, they were divine pronouncements, but John, as he's about to record what he's just heard, is told, don't write that down. (laughs) He's prevented from writing these thunder judgments down. Why is he prevented from recording them? Well, frankly, we're not exactly sure. Some commentators suggest that God intends to communicate that not everything about this book is gonna be fully understood and known. Others suggest that God holds off these judgments in mercy towards those who are unrepentant. Still others think that these are not recorded because they're repetitions of the previous judgments. So like so much of the book of Revelation, there's mystery here, and by the way, that's by design. If you think you know everything going on in Revelation, you don't know Revelation. Part of the message of this book, church, is that hope doesn't come from knowing all the details of what's going to happen in every specific event. Hope comes from knowing and keeping our eye on a singular truth, and that is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is going to return. Hope comes from knowing the King and knowing the one behind the roar. What happens next is fascinating. According to verse five, the mighty angel raises his right hand and he swears to him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it and the sea and what is in it, that, that there would be no more delay. So the angel links his announcement and his oath to the character of God. In other words, the assurance that's offered in this book is directly linked to the essence of the one who is on the throne. So the promises are connected to the promise maker. This is not a new concept if you've been walking with us through the book of Revelation, resting in who God is, resting in terms of who is in control is a theme woven throughout the book and yet it's a book, it's a message that we need to hear over and over again. Why? Because we live in a broken world and we need regular reminders about who's in charge. The dynamics in which we are called to persevere continue to change and evolve. In your teens, when you're a Christian, you need to understand what it's like to persevere. The issues change in your 20s and 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Every generation, every season of church history requires a new application of the truth that Jesus is in control and he can be trusted. In fact, verse seven states it explicitly. 
He says that the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. In other words, this pronouncement is here connecting the vision that John is receiving and the character of God and the Old Testament prophecies. John is now being brought into the fold of all other Old Testament prophets in order to communicate that John's vision stands on the hope and the authority of all of the prophets that have come before him. In other words, that the book of Revelation is as authoritative and prophetic as the book of Daniel and Ezekiel. The same God who can be trusted in the Old Testament is the same God who can be trusted while John is on the island of Patmos. It's the same God who can be trusted for the world in which we live today. Finally, here we come now to the main point of this sermon. We come to the final section of this interlude and it seems to me that this is the reason why chapter 10 is in our Bibles. John is given personal instruction that relate to his posture in receiving and declaring this revelation. The result is that John joins a long list of biblical prophets who declare God's word in a conflicted manner. We see John's prophetic confliction and it becomes very instructive. Look at verse eight. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So John is given instructions. You see the angel, go to that angel and take that scroll. Verse nine. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, here it comes, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. So he, he tells them, take this. This is going to make your stomach bitter, but the initial taste of it will be sweet as honey. And then verse 10, and I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So here we see this really interesting interlude where John is sort of recommissioned as a prophet. He's given instruction as to what he is to do with the revelation that he's just received. He's just received this immense judgment with the trumpets and now we have this little pause that's in the middle of this book where John is told to take this scroll and to eat it and the initial tasting will be sweet as honey, but the effect in his stomach will be one of bitterness. It'll be something that in one moment he'll love, he'll receive the scroll and think, man, this is amazing. 
And then as he thinks about it further, he begins to feel sick. So he has this confliction. At the one level, he loves the message, and at another, the message makes him sick. He feels conflicted. This Christian is the normative posture of what it means to live in the world. This posture of living with hopeful confliction is not only central to John's ministry and the message that he's given, but it's also central to the message of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter eight. Listen, Romans 8, 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, we're groaning, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons. You see the confliction that's happening? We're groaning and waiting. And then he says this, for in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Living with hopeful confliction means that Christians know and love the revelation of God. They love it as they live tearfully in a world under the curse of sin. So we know this is true, and we know he's coming back, but as we celebrate and acknowledge the power and the beauty of the return of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, we can't also help but be very aware that there are people who we love who don't love the king, and if he comes back before they start to love the king and turn to him, they're in big, big, big trouble. And so on one hand, we say, come, Lord Jesus, and in another breath, we say to our friends and our relatives, people that we love, come to Jesus. Come, 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 come. We live in a broken world as we see the brokenness around us and the things that are taking place, we, we live with a, a, a different kind of perspective. We love what we hear in the Bible. We love the truths of the word and at the same time we know that we, we live in a world that is terribly out of order. So how do we live, how do we live out the vision of Revelation chapter 10? Let me give you a number of ways, there's six of them. Number one, if you're a Christian, you ought to expect to be regularly conflicted. First, you ought to expect confliction. Don't be surprised when you follow Jesus and you live in a broken world that it's often bittersweet. Some of you think that following Jesus means everything's gonna go amazing in your life. It's just not true. 
there used to be a track that we would hand out at my church growing up and it said, how to have an abundant life. That's kind of true. The track maybe better could have been titled, How to Suffer. But I don't think it would have been as well received by people, right? But isn't that the confliction? It's sort of like when I run into parents who find out that they're pregnant with twins and they ask us, or they say, hey, we're pregnant with twins. And I look at them, I'm like, congratulations. Because it's amazing. It is. And they're like, tell us about it. Here's what I say. The fourth year is awesome. <laughs> it's true. You don't sleep, it's hard work, you're always exhausted, but, but it's amazing. I wouldn't trade that experience for anything, but it's really hard. I think that some of us have the wrong view of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We're looking to add Jesus to our comfortable American life. We, we want the American dream, and then we want to know that when we go to die, we're going to go to heaven, so we should continue the American dream 2.0, and Jesus is there. Yeah, that's not it. We ought to expect confliction. We live in a world that's broken, and we ought to regularly expect moments when life is hard, and the world that we live in is just bittersweet. Secondly, I want to encourage you to pray in confliction. If you read the Psalms, you'll find all kinds of confliction. One out of every three Psalms, one out of every three are laments. Moments when God's people talked to God when the world was falling apart, when they prayed in pain, hoping that it would lead them to trust. One out of every three Psalms. That's helpful because I think if that's true, one out of every three days for a Christian is probably gonna be hard. Pray in confliction, but whatever you do, don't stop praying. Third, read your Bible with confliction. Query the Bible and read it with a yearning to grow, a longing to discover what's in there and then realizing how much you have to learn. Isn't it both, here's another confliction, isn't it both amazing and kind of discouraging that when you read a text that you've read before and you've never seen it that way before and you realize you're convicted about something that you should have been convicted about 100 times ago when you read that text. The fact of the matter is, the more you grow in Christ's likeness, the more you understand that you need to grow. You're not mature if you're like, I'm nailing it. That's the confliction. Fourth, build relationships with confliction. Love one another deeply, remembering that we are all broken. We need the message that is bittersweet. We need the king to return in order to make all things right. We have to love one another deeply while remembering 
that until Jesus returns, it's never gonna be perfect. Fifth, work and do your job with confliction. We'll see later, there's a thing called Babylon and Babylon's gonna emerge and Babylon isn't a nation, Babylon is a system. It's a system connected to military and political and financial might. It's the system of the world. It's the environment in which God's people have always been called to live in and the way that you live in that world successfully is realizing that I live in a world but this world is not my home. If you don't live with a conflicted relationship with your job or your career, it's pretty easy to let that job or career become your identity and become your functional God and for you to forget that the king that you're looking for is Jesus. And sixth, finally, this book compels us to share the gospel in confliction. The message of the book of Revelation needs to be shared. People need to be warned. They need to be cautioned. If you're not a Christian, you need to understand what this book says, and I hope that you hear, even coming from me, a brokenheartedness about the reality of what the judgment of God is like. I don't know that I have a statistic on this, but I think it's true. I just don't know many people who came to Christ because people were yelling at them. I don't know many people who come to Christ because some guy got in your grill and was like, turn or burn! (laughs) What? People come to Christ because of a broken-hearted posture of Christians who know the grace of Jesus and who look at their friends and their neighbors and they plead to God for their salvation and they patiently and lovingly and consistently call them, invite them. Oh honey, won't you turn to Jesus? Son, you've had so many wayward things in your life. Have you thought about putting your trust in Jesus? It's the counselor who who pleads with the person broken in their mind and heart to come back to Jesus. It's a friend sitting across the coffee table saying, man, I love you, but bro, bro, this is headed a bad way. This isn't gonna work. And it's the confliction of important and strong biblical truth married with the tender compassion of what it means to have been given the forgiveness of your sins. So here's the point. Reading Revelation is supposed to do something to you, Christian. The book isn't meant to merely satisfy your curiosity. It's, it's, designed, us to help, it's designed to help us understand the future so that we can live right now. And how do we live right now? 
We receive the revelation that is sweet as honey, knowing that it also has a level of confliction with it. We live with hopeful confliction. That's why this book's in the Bible. And that's how God calls us to live. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for heavy texts like last week and little pauses and interludes like this week that remind us that following you is really hopeful, but it's not always a straight line. And we pray that you'd help us to be the kind of people as followers of you who live out a real, gutsy, compassionate walk with Jesus. Oh Lord, grant us the grace to do that today. We pray this in the name of our King, in Jesus' name. Amen.